Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to George, Ezra and Friends, the podcast. And this is episode 11 with the lovely Lily Allen. For those of you that are new to the show, my name is George Ezra. I'm a musician, I'm a singer, I'm a songwriter. And uh, yeah, I recently released my second album, Staying at Tomorrow's, which means that I'm, a, I'm very busy and I absolutely love it. So thank you to all of you that have gone out and got yourself a copy. And to all of you that have come out to see us perform recently, a huge thank you. Now, this week's guest is Lily Allen, and I'm recording this introduction from my hotel room in Brussels. And uh, yesterday, was actually the day that I recorded the episode because Lily was also in Brussels. Lily's show was last night. I headed round to her hotel. She had done about three hours of press and promo already, so I can't tell you how happy I am that she agreed to meet me. I can, I know how tiring it can be. And um, yeah, she invited me into the hotel and we sat down and we spoke about everything going on in her world and everything that's happened before now. It was an absolute pleasure, and I I think you're going to love this episode. As always, I just want to say, if you've got kids around you, if you've got the show running in the background, in the car, there might be one or two swear words. I just want to give you a heads up. Here we go. Lily Allen. My older sister was obsessed with you growing up, so you're like completely, and then, which was brilliant, which meant you were kind of royalty in our household, which is great, but it, I was kind of, I must have been 13, 14 when you released your first record, right. and it, it, it kind of, only looking back on it, I guess you, you did a very good job of painting a picture for me of what living in the city might look like. Mm the capital like I know this sounds like but I grew up outside of London and I think also you gave me an idea of what young adulthood would be like oh do you know you not that that was your role to fulfill that I think that's what I took from it um that's good good to hear that I'm happy that that's what I gave (laughs) you but at the same token looking back on it I think it seemed like a hectic time. Even to me as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, mm. it felt like everything around you was full-on. Yeah, yeah. Although I kind of like longed for those days in lots, in lots of ways. Um, I feel like it was like the beginning, the beginning of social media, so to speak, you know, then. And MySpace is where I sort of launched myself off of. And it feels like I feel nostalgic for that because it was so like less complicated and real, mm. you know. I feel like now, you know, Twitter, although it's you know a great place to express yourself and to like contribute to conversations, it's limited in even just in the amount of characters, you know. Um, and um, Instagram, even more so, I think, because it's especially for girls, it's kind of. Well, actually, in the last year, it kind of feels like it's become more about likes and popularity than it was previously. But I think for girls, you know, you get that spike in engagement by taking your clothes off mm. or putting on more makeup, and that's really concerning for that. Those two websites seem to be the place that musicians or you know anyone working in media like that's their 
point of contact to their to their fans and MySpace felt really music centric and these other two websites don't just before coming here today out of interest I looked up when Twitter launched to Mm. see it was this time 10 years ago wasn't it it was it said 2006 so it probably kicked off but that was exactly when your first record was coming out and you're so right MySpace was like not only was it music based but you had to be pretty committed to have a page Mm. remember you had to do all like the The HTML code yeah (laughs) Yeah. love that yeah But you're, you're absolutely right. And it, was it... I've not heard you talk much about... I'm sure you have. Mm. But about what you were listening to before the fact of releasing your own music. Mm. Like, was music something that... Does it make sense to you that you... Yeah, you, for sure. I mean, I grew up like... Um, like we all do. You know, our point of reference or our sort of self-referential reality tunnels like start up with our parents and what we... What they give us in terms of musical sustenance but um, you know my parents were divorced so I guess I w- was like better off in the sense that I had two different examples <laughs> of what was going on my mum was like more into like Blossom Deary and Ella Fitzgerald and jazz and my dad was into the clash and the specials and well, my mum was into that stuff as well but I def- think I definitely heard more stuff from him and then for my sins, my sort of like musical discovery or like the the process, like my early teens of like when I started to discover music and consume it myself, like c- seemed to coincide with LimeWire, which was like a rip, yeah, ripping yeah. website. And um, yeah, I used to find, I just used to sit up all night just looking stuff up. <laughs> I, know, I know like you, you've touched on before, like and I'm not putting words into your mouth here, but it kind of like a chaotic childhood or lots of schools and like mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going on around you. And th- this is where I'm not putting words into your mouth. But was music ever something that you... T- was it like an escape at all? Or was it, you know, just something yeah, that bubbled I've, along? I've never really like, you know, without wanting to like get my tiny little violin out. Um, you know, I wasn't really, like, very nurtured as a child. Like, my parents were both really focused on themselves and their careers, and that was great, you know, it taught me a lot. Um, but I was definitely sort of, like, left wanting, and nobody really, like, did my homework with me or like, even, like, you know, taught me how to brush my teeth. Just, like, really simple things. Like, I was just sort of, like, left to get on with it, and I kind of probably grew up quite fast as a result of that. Uh, you know, still to this day, like, I really struggle with, like making decisions about what it is that I want because so much of our character is formed at that at those early years and um, I was always kind of just like led by what opportunities were afforded to me which kind of it was never about me it was always about how I could fit into everybody else's schedule and um, and so now, you know, when people say, you know, what do you want for dinner? I'm always just like, uh, what do you want? <laughs> or, you know, what do you want to wear on this TV programme? And it'll be like, well, uh, you, you choose, you know, like, I don't, I'm really bad at, like, uh, like claiming things for myself yeah. in lots of ways. Um, and music was the first time, I think, that I realised that I liked something. Um, and that happened to me in primary school uh, and I had this teacher called Mrs Miller who got cancer actually and she, while she was doing chemotherapy we got a supply teacher, this woman called Rachel Santesso and she was much younger than Mrs Miller and she saw something in me 
um, I, was, I was a bit of a loner and uh, I was singing um, Wonderwall to on my Walkman in the playground. She walked past and she was like, oh, you know, you've got a good voice. Do you want to do some singing lessons with me? And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and it was sort of the first time that someone had gone like, oh, you're a person. Mm. Do you want to do some things? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, that's, and that's kind of how it happened. And then I you know, prepared a piece with her. We did um, a song called Baby Mine, which is the song the mummy elephant sings to the baby elephant in Dumbo. And oh, God, that's heartbreaking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is. I can't watch Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I got up and I sang that in, like, a assembly-type thing, and the room just went silent, you know, and it was like... You know, I was sort of, like, known, not for being a troublemaker, but just a bit of an outcast at school, and I think, like, the other parents and everything... It was like a penny-dropping moment. It was sort of like, oh... For them and for me, it was like, oh, look, I can, like, control this room. Like, I've got... I, something I'm doing is like having an effect on other people and it was a feeling that I really liked and not like that I need not like it doesn't need to be like a movie moment of like I found my calling yeah. but did you was there an element of kind of I'm gonna even at that young age like I, I didn't I didn't no I didn't I don't think I like translate like you know projected it into the future and like this is how I'm gonna you know earn my living or you know whatever this is my vocation but there was a moment when um I was in uh uh, Crammer College, trying to do my GCSEs, which I ended up not doing. Um, but my head teacher there um, expelled me. And as I was leaving, she said, you know, what are you going to do? And I was just panicked, because I, I didn't know mm. what I wanted to do in my life. You know, she was like... And I just said, you know, I, gu I guess it was a process, process of elimination, because I was just like, well, what... What am I good at, you know? And I was still, oh, singing. So I just sort of said, well, I'm going to be a singer. And that was the first time that I'd ever... Like, How old would you have been then? 15, 14, 15. And when you said that, do you think you consider that to be realistic? Or do you think it was like kind of a comeback to that No, it was, it was a bit of a comeback, but it was also just like logical. Because it was like, well, I'm only 14. Like, why would I have that figured out yet? But, you know, I, I had to say something, but I didn't really have anything that I thought I would be able to make a living out of at that point, except for maybe singing, because that was the only thing that I was good at, or seemed to excel at. So, yeah, I just... I said that, and she said, well, if it hasn't happened already, then it's probably not going to happen, dear. Fourteen. Come on, mate. <laughs> it's not on, is it? <laughs> um, anyway, I thanked her in the sleeve notes of my first album. Good. Yeah. Good. Have you heard the story of the yeah. Weatherspoons? No. Apparently the dude that started Weatherspoons, he was expelled... Or a teacher said to him, you'll never amount to anything, and that was Mr. Weatherspoons. Yeah. So he was, like, started this huge chain. And <laughs> apparently so. Which That's I think is good. So then in 2006, you release All Right Still. Yeah. And, it, like, there's... You work with Greg Kirsten on that one? Uh, yeah. One track or two tracks, okay. yeah. So, like, how, how many years up until release day were you working on that record? How were you meeting these people? Kind of, how did that come about? Um, well, um, I had a manager called George Lamb. Do you know who George Lamb is? He's like a... No, I feel like I know that name. He's like a TV presenter now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I do know. He's Larry Lamb's yeah, yeah, son. Yeah, yeah. So he was my first manager. Well, actually, he was my second manager, but he managed a band called The Audio Bullies as well at the time, and he said to me, um, you're not really going to make any money out of this if you don't write your own songs, because I was only, like, doing covers and stuff at the time. Um... And I thought, OK, well, I'd quite like to make some money. That would be good. Um, 
and he put some sessions in. One of which was with the band, uh, with this sort of like duo called Future Cut, who are um, two people called Darren and Tundi, and they had this little studio up in Manchester in Old Mount Street uh, or New Mount Street. I can't remember. Anyway, um, it was like one of those sort of like weird business centres that. Um, yeah. They had like a tiny, tiny, tiny little studio in there. And I went up and I stayed with a friend of my dad's near to Manchester in the, on the moors and was there for like a week. And the first song I ever wrote was Smile. No way. Yeah. That's really annoying. <laughs> I know, I never really <laughs> beat it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was the first song I ever wrote. And cool. how we hear it now, was it pretty similar to... Yeah, I never re-recorded the vocals. I've heard you say that you kind of record as you're writing, yeah. which annoys me as well, like in a good way. Yeah. I wish I could do that. It must be a pretty economic way of... Yeah, although I've, on this record, actually, is the only time that I've sort of started going back and, and redoing vocals. Um, only because, like, beforehand, I've always really worked to the time constraints of whatever producer it is that I'm working with. And, you know, money constraints as well, in terms of what the record label want to pay for, in terms of, like hotel mm. rooms and flights and you know whatever else um but uh this time around I, you know i've got my own studio now in king's cross and so i've started ideas with people and then would bring them back um and expand on those ideas and i guess just because you know when i started an idea my vocal would sound different to when i finished it six months later so yeah. then i'd re-record the whole thing but yeah it's the first time i've ever done it like that I'm, I'm sure there was a clip I remember seeing around the third record, and I'm, forgive me if I'm wrong, but you're pretty much in your kind of dressing gown. Yeah. And you're just singing it in, in your front room. <laughs> yes. Is, do, you, do you remember that? Yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that. I was sure I wasn't wrong. Um, <laughs> but just, th th you're the first person that I've spoken to on the show where you kind of came up just at a time... At the, the last av av available time for people to kind of be out and, you know, having nights out, going and living a life without just everything being documented on smartphones. Uh. Do, do you, do, do you yes, appreciate that? Yes, but it was documented by paparazzi photographers Even instead. more so. Yeah, and that was sort of like more intrusive in a way because it's very, that world is very like physically intimidating. Um, you know, at least people when they're, on camera phones, just sort of like sly about it, you know. It's a bit annoying, but. Um, but you, uh, do you think that, like, the paparazzi element has died down just generally? Because of camera phones, yeah. yeah. I think so. Well, also because, you know, paparazzi would sell pictures to newspapers, and newspapers don't really want paparazzi pictures, they just want any pictures. And now everyone creates their own content, so newspapers just lift stuff from people's social media and it's free so why would they buy pictures from men that are sort of yeah, stolen yeah, yeah. recently there was a i think it was around one of the attacks in london and i remember on the bbc report it was like one commentator said this and it was just someone's fucking tweet mm. i said that's not a fucking commentator at all that could be anybody no i know well that's also also like you know a lot of the time when the daily mail writes stuff about me or other people you know they'll go like you know fans turn on lily mm. what they mean is there's been some red arrows in their comment section like literally that's what they refer to mm. it's crazy isn't it was there an element before you released music where it 
that lifestyle was appealing. In the, I, I mean, you, you definitely are a musician that crosses into celebrity as well. Mm. Was that ever appealing? Or, or was, it, was there like a, oh, I, I, like a curiosity of I want to no, see... No, I definitely it? think it was appealing. Like, I've, I kind of... I wanted to be famous, but I wanted to be famous for doing something good, mm. you know. Um, and, you know, I don't think I would have, like... I don't think I would bother writing my own songs if, I, if it wasn't... If it was about something else, then I would just get, you know, hit writers and top liners to come and do everything for me and probably learn how to dance better and go to the gym. <laughs> <more>. um, <laughs> but that's never really been what it's about primarily. But, you know, I did... I did like all of that stuff. I didn't. I didn't expect for it to go where it went. And I, you know that. You know, I signed a deal when I was 19 for 25 grand for five albums. Um, I'm still in that deal. And you know, if I'd have thought that it was going to go where it went, I would have asked for a lot more fucking money. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. So I wouldn't like the fact that I accepted that deal tells you where I sort of saw myself going which is where I've, I kind of thought that I'd be some, somewhere like in that Thames beat vibe you know like Larrick and Love and yeah, yeah. Jamie T and like I kind of thought that's where I would sit and the the sort of stratospheric like success that happened like almost overnight was totally unexpected and really overwhelming but you know everyone around me was like wow this is great everyone loves you you know and everyone was just coining it and making so much money and um I never really like got a minute to go like, do I like this? Is this nice? Because everyone was saying, this is great. Mm. And you know that thing that I was touched on earlier in the thing of like, you know, I've never really been able to articulate what it is that I want. Okay, see, so, so that everyone else going it. around me, this is brilliant, isn't it? My character is just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course yeah. If it's you brilliant. say so, yeah. then of course. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is that, like, I was the same. I signed when I was 19, and I didn't even look at the figure. I, I just mm. remember people saying, do you want to record music and perform? Mm. And I was like, yes. yeah. Yes, where like, do I, I sign? You know, I haven't thought of it through. Mm. Um, it's really funny that you bring up Jamie T, because I was going to kind of mention him as well. There's something that you do amazingly, and I think it's kind of something that probably comes and goes in vogue, mm. like, but storytelling, and actually... Mm. You know, commit into a beginning, a middle, and end. I think Jamie yeah. T came up at a similar time and yeah. does it amazingly as well. Okay. Um, yeah, I just think it's it's hard. It's hard for many because you've only really got three minutes twenty. Mm -hmm. You know, like of course you could do longer if you wanted, but that's the reality. To get a kind of story squeezed into that, mm. it's tough. And then also, you either have to go completely fictional, mm. so you have to go right cool, I'm going to make up these two characters mm. or this one character, or you have to put yourself into it. Mm. Um, which I think a lot of artists struggle even to commit to that, mm. to put themselves into it. Or I think some people do it mm. subconsciously and then go, oh shit, I mm. wish I hadn't put you know, that much in. D yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I've, I've, I always like... <sighs> I always try and write things like for myself that are relevant to me that other people might also be able to so empathise with or, you know, or not empathise with but relate to. And I never really set out to write stories like, you know, every, every song just sort of like starts with a phrase and then just expands, you know, so it's, it's um, I never like think I want to write about this. It's always just a word that 
So stuck in your mind. Well, yeah, the kind of, or like, so much about like the phonetics of you know of whatever the music is, and then the first word that comes out of my head. Because I'll, I'll, you know, someone will play some chords on the piano, and then I'll just stand in front of the microphone and sing along. And that, like, normally, just when I'm sort of like singing melodies, like one word or kind of like, or even like it sounds like it might be a word, you know. Um, and then, like, ideas kind of evolve around that word or that phrase. So, like, with a song like URL Badman or Three, mm-hmm. as examples, do you start with the title and go, right, how do I write the song that fits this? Or do, or do you come up with the, like, I'm going to write about this? Um, three, like, the chords came, the chords were, were the first thing, and I was like, what is this, what is this song about? Um, and it just felt like childlike to me. Um, and so I'm pretty sure that it's that song started with the uh, with the verse the opening lyric of the verse which is you know you say you're going but you don't say how long for and I wanted to kind of like play with this idea that it's a love you know it could be a love song to a lover first of all but then it reveals itself as being something else and uh, yeah I just like I remembered um, having a conversation with my therapist actually about um, you know my daughter's not being able to compute why I have to go so much you know because you know you say to your kids you know mummy's got to go to work but really what they don't really have a concept of what work is or why work exists you know what what the outcome of work is that what they think is you're leaving me and um, and and actually they internalise that. They go, you're leaving me, I must have done something wrong. You know, because otherwise, why would you want to leave me? And also, you know, that matched with, you know, whenever I do see them, I probably, like, uh, smother them in love a little bit too much, you know, because I overcompensate. Um, So I'll be like, you know, God, I love you so much, and your homework is so brilliant, you know, blah, blah, blah. So when you've got your mum telling you that she loves you so much, and then that mixed with her constantly just walking out on you. It was really confusing (laughs) and mixed messages. And so that was kind of what I wanted to... And and the only way to sort of articulate that in the song was to do it from their perspective. Honestly, I thought it was amazing. (coughs) Genuinely, and I kind of kicked myself when I I heard it. It was like halfway through, probably exactly when I was supposed to realise what was going on. I was like, oh, I get it. I was like, okay, it's worked. Um, I know it's kind of a... I don't know if this will be a boring question for you to answer, I don't know, but how do you approach how much you involve your kids in what you do? Are they kind of aware? Um, They are aware. They're they're getting more aware of it. They've definitely, like, been in the dark. You know, they're they're five and six, so they don't really have, like, a concept of, you know, fame and... um, they know that mummy's a singer, that she goes to the studio to sing songs, and now they're like, now she's on the stage, you know? Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> Are you going, going well on the her. stage tonight, mummy? <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. Who's going to look after us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's always the next question. 
<laughs> like grandma. Yeah. Um, no, and yeah, so they they do they've got this concept now of like fame though because my oldest daughter said that you know some kids in school like wanted to be friends with her like in the girls in the top year because because of. you know the, one of their mums had told them that Ethel's mum was famous. Um, so there's that now to contend with, but and that's sort of fine and and expected. Um, but I have to kind of like be quite curt with them. Like I just don't want them like getting sort of like delusions of grandeur, you know? Yeah. Do you find yourself dumbing it down almost like? Well, they they are always like you know. Well, also it's weird because like I don't really know what's going on myself, you know. So it's like they'll be like, "Mummy, are you famous?" And I'll be like, "Well, I definitely was." <laughs> <laughs> At one point, um, and they're like, "What does that mean?" Fame's like, a funny word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the time you're old enough to appreciate yeah. it, it'll all be gone. Yeah. Um, no, they're they um, they, but they yeah. And now they're sort of like playing with it. So like, we went to the um, the food market the other day, which is like this outdoor market near where we live on a Saturday and on a Sunday even. And we were just sort of like wandering around. And it's quite busy, and Ethel just went, Lily. Really loudly. Oh, God. <laughs> everyone turned around, and I was just like, "This is horrendous." But it was funny because it was like that role reversal thing. Like you know, when kids are meant to be like embarrassed of their parents yeah, when you go out shopping, <laughs> and you're like, you know, Ethel, come back here, and they're like, "Ooh, stop it, mum!" But it was like totally the other way around, and I'm like, "Oh my God, get me a table." Am I like, yeah. immediately? <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> but um, so she's definitely like. Figuring out like what that means and how to use it best for probably to her abilities. Okay. Which is, um, and she knows that it's got her some like pretty cool friends at school, and she knows that she can make people turn around at the market. But beyond that, she hasn't quite figured okay. it out. <laughs> Ta-da! So this is the part of the show where I kind of cut the conversation in half and I let you know what's going on in my world and what I'm up to and what's keeping me busy. I, I mentioned earlier that I recently released my second album, Staying at Tomorrow's, and it's a collection of songs that I wrote having spent a month in Barcelona and they're songs about escaping and dreaming and taking yourself away from everything going on around you. Um, and it's always surreal to release an album, you know? but I just can't tell you how amazing the reaction has been. We're playing shows across the UK, around Europe, we're in America at the moment, and just the amount of you that, you know, you already know all the words to the new songs, it's, it's as if you've lived with them a lifetime. So for any of you that are listening that have been to see us recently, just the biggest thank you from the bottom of my heart, it means the world, so thank you very much. Um, and for any of you that haven't listened to the album yet, I invite you to do so. I'd, uh, you know, give it a go. Um, I should also say, for any of you that just want to keep up to speed with what I'm up to, the best place to do so is georgeezra.com. Um, you'll find links to everything there. So that's, you know, all the good stuff, videos and photos and tour dates and what we're up to, what we've been up to, what we're going to be up to. Um, there's also a link there to sign up for my journal, which is a letter I write once a week that you receive into your email and I just let you know what we're up to, where we are and what's going on. And there's also brand new merch. 
merchandise. So if you like that kind of stuff, then yeah, we've got a really good line going at the moment. We kind of, a friend of mine took the photos that made the uh, album artwork and uh, all the photos that you see around the album were taken in Barcelona and we've managed to incorporate them into the merchandise. We've got t-shirts and tea towels and mugs and uh, yeah. I don't know, I never go to a gig without buying a tea towel. That's my favourite kind of merch. So go and check that out, georgeezra.com and uh, let me know where you are, get in touch. I love it all, yeah. And I, again, am rambling. So let's stop this, let's jump back into the conversation with the lovely Miss Lily Allen. Gearing up to releasing this this record, how much of a running jump do you take? Was it kind of 18 months ago you go, oh, I'm going to start working on new stuff? Like, I know you're, um, you're, you're above Mark Ronson's studio, which is Fred Gibson now. Yeah, Fred's in there now, yeah. He's on one of the tracks on my new record. Oh, cool. He's a really sweet guy. Yeah, he's I nice. Fred, I, I did actually a song with him with Burner Boy, which ended up on Burner's record. Um, it's that Heaven's Gate thing that we did. But yeah, he's, he's really nice. I like Fred how conscious an idea of like I'm going to write and release a record or is it more you're just stockpiling stuff and then you go oh shit this could be a record mm. no I was writing this record for ages you know like actually coming off the back of Jesus like I, I really lost myself in, in the whole Jesus thing um, like I had an identity crisis you know by the end of it I was just like completely mind fucked um, in hindsight do you <clears throat> think you were aware of that before you released it or do you think it was all stuff that happened post release no it was it was like a like stuff that happened like around the release and i just lost agency and then i lost confidence and then i got angry and then i started drinking and it was just like a disaster you know um but uh i knew like first and foremost i really wasn't enjoying the shows um, and <coughs> I was like having to drink a lot even just to get on stage never mind what happened afterwards and uh, I knew and, and I kind of like I called it on the promotion of the album I was just like you know what I'm done with this um, and I said to the record label like I'm not doing any more promotion I don't care about this album which anymore. is uh, that's kind of putting an album to bed isn't it because yeah. once you stop promoting it it kind of yeah um, so I think there were meant to be like two more singles and I was just like no not doing this anymore um and i you know with uh, upheld my touring commitments but you know begrudgingly like i just didn't i really just didn't want to be doing it anymore and i just really wanted to get back into the studio and start writing something else do you think people were aware at the shows that you weren't into it or do you i don't know you'd have to ask them i mean i've actually felt really isolated even in the shows like with the audience as well because the band that i had i didn't like I didn't like the people in it. Um, they weren't listening to me when I was saying that I wanted things to change and to sound different. Um, and so all I could fucking hear was this noise in my ears. That um, you weren't happy with even before you went on stage. Yeah, and I was just like, I hate these people. I hate everything. <laughs> it's really not good as well when you're waking up each day set out to achieve something and you don't achieve it like, mm. regularly. And also you know you're not going to for the next six months. Like... That's fucking hard. And on top of that, trying to justify why you're away from your children. Shit, yeah. So why the com what we were talking about, those conversations with your yeah. kids, are still going on. Mm. 
and you're kind of on their side more than ever. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I was just like, I don't want to be in fucking Wisconsin, like on my own, really hungover, playing music that I don't, I'm not really into, with these people that don't care about me, that I don't care about. What the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I think for a lot of people in that situation, that would be the line in the sand of like, I'm moving on c completely. I don't. I think right. that the fact that you've gone back to write and record music is a beautiful thing. I think right. a lot of people would have been like, fuck this. I'm doing something else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, like, I find I'm actually, like, quite bad at articulating myself in lots of ways. Or I get, sorry, anxiety about articulating myself. And I'm not very good at um, managing relationships with people. I'm, talk I'm good at talking about things that I believe to be true and, to be and, and are fact, but I'm not very good at conveying my emotions. The only way that I'm good at it is in song form. Um, and so it really is a necessity for me. Like, I can't really... I, I wouldn't. I don't know how I'd communicate with people if I didn't have the medium of music yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to do it. <laughs> you know, and I and I definitely feel like when I put music out, like I feel like a sense of like relief, like cause I know there are certain people that will listen to it and be like, oh, you know, that's why she wasn't being weird. She was. Th th it was this, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't feel confident enough to have the conversation or whatever. But yeah, and, and I deal with it in music. I, d I heard you d saying in the. the Beats interview about how this is like one of the most honest records you've you know worked mm. on, and and I just found that like what were the others if this one's like more so? <laughs> well, I think that in honesty, like I don't know if you heard about my stalker. I had a stalker about two and a I half did years hear ago. About, I just yeah. It was in a, and it was a really horrendous experience. You know, he broke into my house and you know he later transpired like did intend to kill me and um, you know that really spun me out and um, and it wasn't validated by the police like they sort of tried to play it down um, and it wasn't until the trial that I found out what his intentions were and it was really it really spun me out um, but because of the lack of validation from the police I didn't feel like I could talk to anyone about it you know not even my friends and my family because people you know, when a crime's been committed, their point of reference of how serious it is, is how it's the, the police take yeah. it. So when I was saying, this guy broke in and it was really scary, and people go, well, what do the police say? And I go, well, they say not to be scared, everything's fine. I just didn't want to talk about it, because if I felt like I was like... Yeah, understandably. Anyway, um, so I kind of like just became incredibly isolated. But that quickly, just sorry, that goes exactly back to you saying how you feed off people's reactions to mm. things. Because as soon as they react in that way, yeah. you kind of mirror that and mm. go and question how you really feel about it. I yeah. can understand that to an extent, and I can't put myself yeah. in those shoes. But yeah. So yeah, so I basically was just incredibly isolated, and I didn't really, um, you know, I cut off from everybody. I was just spending all my time at home slept a lot, cried a lot, you know, I was in, you know, going to the studio to work, but I think that, you know, all my music has always been about my lived experiences, and although I haven't really written about that experience, on previous albums, I wrote about what I was seeing, and that was me being out in the world, and socialising, and having relationships, and friendships, and so I covered all of those things, and this time round, I wasn't. I was at home on my own. So I was forced to kind of, you know, still wanted to write about my lived experiences in, in a really honest way, but I wasn't having the dialogue with people to um, be able to, you know, do observational music. So, I mean, it is observational, but it's, it's insular rather than uh, commentary, mm. you know? It's honest 
in a way that's different to the others because it's it's looking in rather than looking out. Yeah. Do you get pissed off with artists that kind of dilly dally about what they're talking about, or you know, just d does it frustrate you when pe other people don't? It frustrates me because really and truly, why aren't why aren't you just getting to the point and why aren't you just being honest and and that must just come down to because they think it's going to make them less successful and it's going to make them make less money and that's not what this platform is for it's not for making money I think money. also though another argument would be that it's too much of them so I think yeah. what, you, what you've managed to do is break down this, this wall of the worry of what will people think if I say this or yeah. what, you know, what does this make me look like or whatever yeah. that doesn't seem to have ever been an, an issue, issue for which has been brilliant yeah, but then, you know, that's, that's, I think that's relatively recent, you know, like, and I think that people started to get more scared about what people thought of them in the public eye when the tabloids exploded, which was in the, you know, 80s, really. Um, and now I think that's got even worse because the tabloids have actually lost power and control and it's now the tech companies like Instagram and Twitter. Um, and people are terrified of being judged on the internet and so they don't really do anything except for put pictures of themselves up and you know inspirational quotes um, and uh, but before these forces existed these really powerful forces which are actually sort of like propaganda arms if you ask me in the 50s 60s and 70s is when you heard music that meant something it was emotional you know that's where blues and soul and jazz came from you know it was before we had those outside forces that you know trying to control the fucking narrative the whole time um, and I think that people in pop music or people at the forefront of pop culture don't realise how much power they have actually you know and I think the way that the tabloids were with me and that they reacted to me when I was in my you know in the beginning is really telling because it's like what the fuck are you scared of a 21 year old girl expressing her feelings and being honest and open oh yeah terrifying you better come down on her like a ton of bricks um and i think that they they were they were scared they is were it scared. is it in hindsight that you can say that or even at the time were you no, going, I think this at is the fucking time, ridiculous at the time i was just like why what is this obsession like it's Oh, it's because I'm talking. Like, why, what are they so scared of? And like, that fuels not the necessarily fire. the what I'm saying. It's the fact that I'm even daring to say it. That's what it is. And I just thought, like, wow. And it kind of it got me thinking, you know, over the years that you know, it's it's you know, like John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Like, I mean, I'm not putting myself on a path with John Lennon, but um, you know, these people like stood up for things, and they really like stood to make a change. And you know, he got murdered. You know arguably for doing those things in the 80s when things were as bad as they are sort of like socially and politically now if not worse you know there was reaction to that musically and culturally you know you had the clash and the sex pistols and rock against racism and scar music and the specials and you know f different skinheads and punks coming to get you know and it, it, there seems to be like a concerted effort in the in the arts to try and tackle these issues um, and it worked, you know. Um, and now that seems to not really exist. My, my I get what you're saying completely, but my argument is that when I do hear modern music, there is a reaction to everything going mm. on. 
often for me, and this isn't me calling out anyone mm. in particular, but it's not good songwriting. Yeah. So like the message is there, mm. but the thing is when you say The Clash, or th they're still pop songs. They're mm. still, and I think, so I, I guess in a way I'm agreeing with you, whereby it needs to happen in pop music, not just, mm. it, you know. Um, well, no, also the good things became pop music. Now, yeah. with Spotify and algorithms, uh, it's generally like the vanilla stuff. Because I think that when you have like an extreme reaction to something, that doesn't work with algorithms. Um, especially that sort of like peer-to-peer -peer thing. You know, they take what X person likes and what Y person likes, and if there's something that they both like, then that must mean it's popular. Yeah. So that goes to the front of the algorithm. And if you know X likes this, Y really doesn't like that. In fact, keeps fast-forwarding through mm -hmm. that then that must mean that that's shit. And it's like, no, it just means that Y really doesn't like it. <laughs> and they, they can tell exactly when people skip songs and stuff. This yeah. is what blows my mind, because that's, yeah. that's power, isn't it? Because mm. then they can go like, okay, this song has been, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that there's a lack of people out there, you know, wanting to be part of the sort of like resistance. I think that those people just aren't getting through for whatever reason. Mm. But yeah, I mean, uh, culture and politics and you know society are all so interlinked, aren't they? And you know, the Warner's is owned by this guy, Len Blavatnik, and he, you know, he's like a huge Trump donor and Conservative Party donor, and you know, just invested like 120 million pounds in the Oxford School of Government, and has had the new wing at the Tate Gallery named after him. And it's like, music is so much more powerful than people realise. But that's like what what you're talking about there is like you're up to speed with everything going on around you kind mm. of thing and that was really apparent and it was a beautiful thing to watch you stand up and talk about Grenfell and mm. you know you, d you d didn't have to do that mm. um, and I'm not saying that you know you deserve praise for standing up like I think it's a great thing that mm. you did but what is it that I get the sense you'd be involved in politics and vocal whatever it w is mm. you spent your time doing but you feel, it seems like you, yeah, like what you're saying, you understand the power that you have, the position that you have. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the way that the, the, that the mainstream media come after me when I do talk about those things is indicative of how powerful it can be, because otherwise, if it didn't, if it wasn't effective, then they would just let it go. But they come it certainly you. doesn't sell papers like to come after me on page 73 or whatever it is like you know that it's not about that for them it's about controlling the narrative and um you know i think i think that like in this age where people are becoming like more scared to express themselves and, and and i do believe that to be the case i mean i really do you know i know that there are people that have really strong opinions and they'll have them but in direct messages and in private messages they won't have them publicly and I think it's because of that that Donald Trump is president mm. and <laughs> that Brexit put, has I happened. I have to put my hands up because that's me. That, right. Like I, I, I made a really conscious decision early on to not be vocal with what I thought because I just... Firstly, I thought I wasn't informed enough and mm. I think you have to be up to speed and informed before you open your mouth publicly. Yeah. And also, so I think that was a big part of it. And I also just thought, who am I to say? And I think you, you're about to say, well, that's the wrong approach to have. Well, I don't think it's the wrong approach to have, but I think that, you know, people really like your music because they connect to it and they believe you as a person and they trust you, you know, to a certain extent. 
And so when they're trying, you know, we live in a democracy. We form our opini opinions based on information that's fed to us by whoever. And if the information that you're getting on those things is from the far-right tabloid newspapers and people that you do trust don't want to express their opinions, then your only one you've got to go on is the one that it's is being expressed. And so I think that, you know, I, it's not that I feel like I'm right and I want to, you know change everyone's minds i just think that like when people are you know no one fucking knew what they were voting for with brexit so if you can if there's somebody that you trust on other issues that's saying well i believe this then it might make it, it easier for you to come to that decision mm. because you're like well I, I know lily's cool like you know she writes about this and writes about that and she's a good mum. and i you know i heard that song that she wrote you know she's like me she doesn't think brexit should happen so you know, I'll take that information on board and I'll help that to form whatever decision that I do make. And I think the, the more of us that are part of the conversation, the more of a de democratic our society yeah. becomes. Otherwise, we're just going to be Tories forever. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, no, I, I, get, I, get, I, I just have to, I have to put my hands up and say, I, you know, I, I, as I said, I consciously have not in the past been vocal about what I think. And yeah. I don't know... And I'm, I mean, I think I, the, other, the other thing is, is that, you know, you're right, you know, you should be inf informed before you speak out about these things. And I don't think that you have to speak out about everything, but I think, you know, if people are bullying people online or they're being yeah, racist yeah. or xenophobic, you know that you don't like that, so you can say something about that. Or, um, I think but, but the other thing is, is that the politicians... They don't know what they're doing either. No, They've no, just no. got bad intentions, and they are using their platforms to, like, mind-warp yeah, people, yeah. you know? I was fortunate enough, I would do um, Ed Miliband has a podcast, and I was a guest on it, and we went for lunch at the House of Common, and he like was like, do you want to sit on Prime Minister's Questions? I was like, fuck yeah. You know, like, I'd love to sit <laughs> yeah. in and watch it. And it was just the most fucking bizarre thing I've ever witnessed, because it was kind of... I, naively, I assumed that there would be some decisions being made in that room. I thought mm. that regardless of who was speaking and who was... I assumed that I was going to be at the kind of beating heart. Mm. It couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. It was more just like... Pandemonium. And I, I mean, it annoys me when it comes on the radio. Like, I mm. turn it off, because that's really hard. But, but to be there and visualise it, I thought it might make more sense. It's just balmy. Pageantry, isn't it? <laughs> I, w I also just think, like, if you wouldn't teach children to solve problems in that way... In fact, if, you know, somebody, like, came up with an idea and, you know, the rest of the class started booing them, you'd tell the rest of the class to, like, get their shit in order. Say, like, she's just coming up with an idea. Like, you don't boo her. That's incredibly rude. Like, why are we letting our country be <laughs> run in that way? Yeah. It's just so insane. Yeah. It's really weird. No wonder we don't sort things out when that's yeah. the system. It's something I'd really like to talk to you about is um, collaborating in general. Mm -hmm. I think you do it very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to talk about the recent track you did with Gigs. Mm -hmm. I think it was very cool. I kind of, when I was say 16 years old, I went, I saw Gigs for the first time. And I remember it being like, I think since I've heard him say that that was his, one of his first live performances oh, wow. and that he was a bit kind of. No, wigged out by it yeah. yeah I could be wrong but I think I've heard him say that um, how do things like that come about and do you do you have an idea of who you want to work with why you want to work with them and no not really I mean I just like sort of live a day you know a day at a time and whatever opportunities present themselves I, I weigh them up and 
I certainly don't, didn't set out to do any collaborations on this record. They just sort of happened um, quite naturally. Uh, the gigs thing, I met him about five years ago at V Festival and he came backstage and was like, uh, why didn't you play any of the old songs? And that was weird for me because I was like, how do you know any of my old songs? Yeah, he did. He started reciting Everything's Just Wonderful. But that was later, actually. That was when he came back to, came to my flat. But, um, yeah, he, he like made a point of coming to see me in my dressing room. He wanted to meet me and... Um, you know, he was really nice and was like, let's meet up, you know, back in London or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, I gave him my number. And a couple of months later, he was driving through my ends. And um, he called me up and said, oh, are you in? And I said, yeah, 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 I am, come over. He came over. And, you know, I think I was playing him some music. And, you know, he was listening quite intently. But he really wanted to, like, tell me how much of a fan he was and how much he loved that how much the the first two albums like you know um meant to him and uh how much sort of like respect he had for me and it was really like i really needed to hear it actually at that point because it was coming out of jesus and i was not in a good place at all and then <coughs> um my manager at the time came over and and um, he uh, was, he was sort of like doing the like alpha male record company thing with I mean like alpha male music industry person thing with gigs and um, oh what with gigs in the, gigs is gigs there is at this still point. there yeah and he's kind of like he's like yeah you right mate like you know peacocking and being a bit of a douchebag and um, and they made this some some joke about me being in like the bargain basement. A section at a petrol station or something like I was definitely like the butt of his joke you know and Giggs just did not laugh and got up and was just like what did you say to her and you know this person like started sort of like laughing and going like oh no I was only joking and he was like no have some fucking respect like <laughs> she's been in this game much longer than you or I and you know she's fucking brilliant at what she does you don't talk to people like that especially not people she was also like have you know more people buy the bargain bucket than any other thing <laughs> exactly <laughs> but um yeah and it was like you know I've not no one's done that for me really amazing ever. and it was really like wow I mean I've it got me like really quite emotional it was like not only did he put this guy in his place but it was just like I listened to what he said I was like actually yes you know I am worth more than that and I am good at what I do and you know I know that he believes that because he's just spent the last hour and a half telling me all of this stuff and um and then after that experience uh he was in the studio and he um said oh come by I want to hear what you've been doing and so I went his over studio. yeah his studio went over to his studio which is just around the corner from my studio played him some stuff that I'd been doing in LA and um, Trigger Bang was one of the songs and he was like, I'm jumping on this. I was like, <laughs> okay. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't give you the choice. No. That's really cool. He was like, I'm doing this one. I was like, okay yes. then. <laughs> Amazing. That's really cool. And is it quite like, is your 
studio at the tile yard is it kind of an open door scenario do people swing by and yeah i mean it's got like i've actually teamed up with shy effects now because he had the studio at the end of the hall so now we've kind of like shared uh, we've like pooled resources and um because i've got like a big sort of live room with a couple of sofas in it and we um you know we do like sort of like group writing in there like not you know writing camp type things but like you know, a producer will come over and there'll be a bunch of artists just hanging out. Do you like that way of writing? Oh, it's never, like, intentional. It's okay. not even, like, intentional writing sessions. It, it's just, um... Yeah, it's, it feels more like a sort of community centre, youth project type vibe, you know? And I've got, a, you know, a record label called Bank Holiday, which I run with my friend and business partner, Theo. And he also manages lots of producers... Um, like JD Reed and a bunch of other people, and a couple of DJs as well. Um, and we've got the CDJs in there, so you know, people, you know, his younger ones come and practice and you know record their sets. And um, yeah, it's like a f there's there's three different rooms with computers in, you know, all hooked up to Logic or Pro Tools or whatever Amazing. anyone wants to do. And um, you know, invariably, that's a lot of how this my record came together is that you know someone would be there working on something for someone else and would play me a track and I'd be like, I love that. So yeah, it's all it's just about that. Stu the studio has just become like a, a space of. Well, I'm so happy that I have it. Like, it's amazing to have that loads freedom. There's going on there as well. Like it's yeah. getting because um, Apple just moved Beats there, didn't they? Yeah, they're right next door. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it feels like that's what it's meant to be like, you know, yeah. rather than all this like writing camps and, um, you know, people getting paid up front. Like, you know, that was what happened. Yeah. I mean, and also like, that's what happened on Jesus is that, um, you know, some, who, one of the producers before I'd even written anything was like, you know, I want like guaranteed three, tr three cuts on the album, like before we'd even like started. I just thought, like, I just don't... This is not, not, this is not how I want to um, create at all. You know, I want to just work with people that want to work with me mm. um, uh, and for the right reasons, you know. And, um, and people that I respect and that I, I can feel that respect off of. And, um, you know, it just makes for... It trust, you know, it makes for a better working environment if mm. people trust each other, for sure. So having learned what you did, especially on Jesus, and you're like going into No Shame now, mm -hmm. and it feels like you're comfortable and confident with everything going on, which is yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm like, I just know, I just know that this is the best record that I could do for like where I am in my life, and psych, you know, psychologically and creatively. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that it's a blueprint for how I will work moving forward. You know, I might feel completely differently in six months' time or a year's time when I start thinking about the next one but um i yeah it felt it felt right at a moment it was just like oh the album's finished it's time i know that, that i think i know what the answer will be and it's too early like i know that you, this record's in its infancy but do you have any idea of projects you want to work on in the future or you know what you want to do moving forward no, because I'm so reactive, you know. <laughs> Does it really change like that? Is it like... Well, I mean, to someone... I mean, I've got... I'm actually working on, like, a couple of musicals at the moment. Um, and I'm really interested in that as, like, a medium. Because I, I wrote a musical for Bridget Jones's Diary. 
that never really came to fruition, but it was such a fun experience and it was some of the best music that I've ever written. And I loved it. And also, you know, just being a mum, uh, I'm always looking for a way that I can express myself and do what I do best, but also not have to leave my, pe my children for long periods of time. Mm. So, you know, writing music for the stage would be a good, a good place to do that. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for today. Thank you. I'm going to leave you to it. I appreciate yeah. it a lot. My pleasure. We are at the end of episode 11 where I sat down and spoke with Lily Allen and uh, if you're listening Lily, who knows, she might be, you might be. If you're listening, a huge thank you. I appreciate it a lot. I know that you're a very busy person and so yes, thank you. Um, and a huge thank you to Warren Borg for taking this conversation and editing it um, all together and a huge thank you to Oshin Griffin who is the man behind all of the visuals that you see on the internet. Um, so yeah, thank you, Oshin. And a massive thank you to Josh Sanger and the Closer Artist team for helping put this together. And of course, most importantly, thank you to you for plucking this episode out and giving it a listen. If you're new to the show, I really do, I invite you to go back and listen to all of the previous episodes. I find with shows that I enjoy, often the people I know the least about or assume I wouldn't want to listen to are the people that I end up loving those conversations the most. So yeah, do go back and give previous episodes a spin. And yeah, just thank you very much. All that's left us, I mean, I don't know where you're listening to this. I always say that you might be Walking to work, you might be travelling into work, travelling back from work. Or, like I say, you might be being naughty and listening to it at work. Or you might be, I don't know, in the supermarket or in a traffic jam somewhere. You could be a lot of different places, wherever you are. I hope you're happy. I hope you're smiling. Yeah, thank you very much. Have a lovely week. See you next time. Bye. Turn your distractions off and discover your new favorite podcast. This is Bose Recommends. Hi, guys. I'm Nat Coombs from the NFL show with Nat Coombs. Yep, that was a title that took us hours to come up with. We're thrilled to be involved with Bose Recommends because, frankly, we are having a great time making this show. We drop episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, and the clue is very much in the title. We're all about the NFL. I'm joined each episode by terrific guests from both sides of the pond, players past and present, journalists, comedians, writers, you name it. If they love NFL, they're in. So what are you waiting for? Get involved. Acast, iTunes, all your favorite podcatchers. It'll be good to have you with us. Enjoy your new favorite podcast without distractions. Discover how at bose.co.uk. Bose. Focus. On.